When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. I think that there will be certainly time for that policy discussion to take place, uh, but that's not the place that we're in at this moment. I think with respect to any um, discussion of legislation, it's premature. Uh, There's an ongoing investigation. This is not the time to go back to the same tired saw over, over gun control. This is not the time to be talking about legislation. We're in the middle of that crisis right now. As the search continues for the Lewiston, Maine killer, Republicans continue to make excuses, including a familiar phrase used over the years after mass murders. Now is not the time to fix the problem. And there are many other shocking but not surprising things that new Speaker Mike Johnson has been saying since he took the gavel. And he's clearly not a big fan of the separation of church and state. Plus, three weeks after the Hamas terror attack, Israel launches an intense new round of airstrikes in Gaza. There is tremendous anger, fear, and sadness among American Jews, Palestinians, and Muslims. And we're going to hear some of those voices tonight. But we begin tonight in Lewiston, Maine, where a frantic manhunt is underway and a community is reeling after yet another mass shooting in America. Hundreds of police officers and investigators have joined the search for Robert Card, who officials say shot and killed 18 people and injured several others at a bowling alley and bar Wednesday night. The search today included dive teams and air searches of a river near where officials say the suspect's car was found. Although three sources tell NBC News that the trail in the search has gone cold. At a press conference just a few hours ago, officials read off the names of the 18 people who lost their lives that night. They include 76-year-old Bob Violette, also known as Coach Bob, who the Associated Press reports devoted himself to his volunteer job coaching youth bowling, the youth bowling league that was practicing Wednesday night. And 53-year-old Trisha Asselin, who worked part-time at the bowling alley. She was off that night, but went bowling with her sister. Her mother told NBC News that Trisha had a great passion for life, was a loving mother, and the most caring person there ever was. I'm coming to Maine the minute we find out when her body will be released from the morgue. I want to hold my baby one more time. I don't care. I want to put her in my arms. There was 44-year-old Bill Young and his 14-year-old son Aaron. Aaron was playing in that youth bowling league and was said to be an avid bowler. Their family told the Associated Press that Bill was a master auto mechanic, always trying to be a funny guy and a man dedicated to his family. Bill's cousin shared her disbelief on the Today Show. They're just innocent people, just innocent people out for a night of bowling. This was a children's event. You know, who expects a shooter to go into a children's event? But, you know, this is the crazy world that we live in today. And there was 42-year-old Arthur Strout, who was playing pool with his father at the bar. His father left shortly before the shooting. Arthur leaves behind a wife and five children. You also had those who lost their lives trying to stop the gunman. 
There was Joseph Walker, a manager at Shemangi's Bar and Grill, whose family was told by police that he tried to confront the gunman with a butcher knife before he was killed. And Michael Delarier, whose father told CBS News his son and a friend charged the shooter after making sure their wives and several children were safe. Both lost their lives. Several of the victims were also members of the deaf community who were competing in a cornhole tournament when the rampage began. That includes Joshua Seal, who was an ASL interpreter for Maine's CDC, CDC briefings during the COVID pandemic. Besides being a tireless advocate for the deaf community, he was also a husband and father of four. Here's what his wife told NBC News earlier today. I'm still processing. It still doesn't feel real. I'm trying to support my kids. Um, I'm, you know, I have a fantastic family, deaf community. I have a huge group of people supporting us and we're not alone in this process. The other uh, victims and their families um, were going to be connected forever about this trauma and we'll be able to support each other in that. And I just tell myself one day at a time. And now, as Lewiston adds its name to the long, long list of towns that have faced this uniquely American tragedy, Republican lawmakers, to perhaps no one's surprise, continue to place the blame on anything, anything except the obvious issue at hand. The new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, in a sit-down interview with Sean Hannity last night, even offered this excuse. At the end of the day, it's, the problem is the human heart. It's not guns, it's not the weapons. At the end of the day, we have to protect the, the right of the citizens to protect themselves, and that's the Second Amendment. And that's why our party stands so strongly for that. The human heart. Despite the fact that literally every person in the entire world also has a human heart. No other country, though, has this problem. Only in America are there hundreds of mass shootings every year in schools and places of worship, in movie theaters, malls, grocery stores, bars, and now bowling alleys. Why? Because only in America can you get your hands on a weapon of war with almost no barriers. And only in America do you have an entire political party that refuses to do anything about it. Congressman Robert Garcia responded to those comments from the new speaker, putting it very bluntly. It is actually the effing weapons. Joining me now is NBC News correspondent Emily Ikeda in Lewiston, Maine. Uh, Emily, give us the latest, please. Joy, good evening to you. Well, the news conference just dropping within the last hour or so. And one of the things that really stood out to me in it is that we are learning more about the timing in the police response. We've been pressing uh, the public information officers for more information. Well, they revealed that off-duty officers responded to the bowling alley where the shooting first broke out within just a minute and a half. Nearby, several miles away at the local bar, officers arrived within five minutes, which speaks to the extent of damage that can be be done in such a short amount of time. 18 people killed in this just horrific tragedy Wednesday night at these two locations. As you saw, I've spoken to a number of the victims' families, and one of the things that stood out to me, you know, is that 
these are very difficult conversations, understandably difficult conversations for these family members to have at such a tough time. But they say they don't want their loved ones to become just part of some statistic. They want the nation to really know about the innocent lives lost. Today, as for the manhunt, the sweeping manhunt efforts, hundreds of officers remain on the ground. They are reviewing more than 500 tips at this point. But law enforcement says they have not cited the suspect Robert Card since that shooting on Wednesday, and now they are expanding their sweeping search efforts to include, as you mentioned, divers exploring the river near where they found the, a car tied to the suspect, where it was parked at uh, alongside a dock there. Right now, we know the shelter in place. This was another new development from this evening. It has been rescinded, though they are noting that hunting is prohibited. Here in Lewiston, along with several other nearby towns, uh, and tomorrow, keep in mind, um, is traditionally the first day of deer hunting there. But another thing that stood out to me in the news conference, Joy, a moment of silence, the reading of the 18 victims. Again, lives taken too soon. So many hearts broken, uh, heartbroken community here in Lewiston, Joy. NBC's Emily Ikeda, thank you very much. And joining me now is Democratic Congressman Robert Garcia of California. Uh, Congressman, you had a very blunt reaction uh, to the new speaker's It's the Human Heart. Uh, I don't even know where he's coming with that because, you know, anyway. Um, but I want to let you say more because I don't know. I, I know how I felt reading the stories of some of those 18 victims. It, it, it made me both sad and mad because how many times are we going to do this? and say how senseless it is and then do nothing. Go ahead. I'm going to want you to say more words. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, look, first, um, we all get, of course, just incredibly sad to hear these stories and what's happening. But that sadness quickly turns into fury and anger. I think um, the American public is just completely maddened at what is happening right now in this country. We have the ability to actually stop what is happening. And yet the House Republicans, the Senate Republicans, conservatives are choosing to do absolutely nothing and essentially are allowing these mass killings to continue over and over again. I am sick and tired of it. The American public is sick and tired of it. The families that are dealing that you just featured right now in your in your show intro, which was heartbreaking. We, we, we have to turn that heartbreak into fury. We have to demand that more people just do the basic, basic, basic changes in the laws around gun registration, around licensing, around ensuring that the assault weapons ban comes back into place. Now, I think what, of, of course, what um, what Representative Golden did and his change on his position uh, was heroic. I hope that other folks, especially Republicans on the on the other side, change their minds in this moment. Stop listening to the damn NRA and actually start supporting their constituents and the people. Uh, you mentioned uh, Representative Jared Golden, uh, who represents this part of Maine. Here is what he said yesterday. I have opposed efforts to ban deadly weapons of war, like the assault rifle used to carry out this crime. The time has now come for me to take responsibility for this failure, which is why I now call on the United States Congress to ban assault rifles, like the one used by the sick perpetrator of this mass killing in my hometown of Lewiston, Maine. For the good of my community, I will work with any colleague to get this done in the time that I have left in Congress. 
And I just want to note that Maine is one of the states that does not have the additional background checks uh, that 21 states have extended to make it a little bit easier um, to stop people who, you know, shouldn't have these kinds of firearms from having them. But but I want to just put up a video for you, Congressman. This is the the manhunt again. Um, As police are going through Lewiston and the nearby areas, that gunman, wherever he is, is as heavily armed as they are. If he's got an M4, he's got what you issue people who are actually going to war. So they are not more heavily armed than he is. I'm just wondering, you know, Republicans say that they back the blue. They're for law enforcement. But they're also subjecting those guys to have to potentially get in a firefight with somebody who is armed equally to them. Your thoughts? Absolutely. And let's be real crystal clear. Most law enforcement leadership across the country, chiefs of police across the country, support additional gun safety regulations. They support additional uh, uh, pieces of legislation and actions, executive actions that will actually take more guns, particularly these weapons of war, off the streets. So if people really want to back the blue and back police officers in this, in this country, I was mayor of my community for eight years before I got to Congress. We need more sensible gun reform legislation in this country. And Republicans at this moment, especially those that are in Congress, should be ashamed of themselves. They shouldn't be able to look in the mirror or at their families and be able to live with themselves with all this carnage that's happening, they actually have the ability to actually stop this and choose to do absolutely nothing. Yeah. And they claim they care about crime, but they're just everyday crimes also being committed with guns, also being committed with AR-15s all over the country, to say nothing of the massacres. I want to get you to comment on the fact that the United States Senate uh, is now considering, and they've just approved uh, a measure and an add-on to a bill, an appropriations bill, that would make it easier for some veterans who have been adjudicated mentally um, you know, less than competent. Um, and these, and it's going to essentially hinder suicide prevention efforts. It's going to mean that, um, somebody who is mentally stressed with a military background can now get a firearm, which is what this guy supposedly was that in Maine. Absolutely. I mean, this is uh, unbelievable. And I I hope that these horrific actions that just happened, this horrific event that just happened, uh, move some people in the Senate to actually do the right thing. Um, What the Senate should be doing is actually passing gun safety legislation. How about putting back in place the assault weapons ban that we let expire shamefully out of the out of the Senate? The House should be taking up this legislation. And the fact that I'm still just disgusted by our new speaker and his comments that he made uh, just last evening, that the human heart is responsible for these actions where we clearly, this is about guns. This is not about prayers or about how we feel or our thoughts or the human heart. This is about one thing that's access to guns in this country. We are the only major nation in the world that allows this to happen. When are, When is this going to stop? So we've got to keep demanding this every single day and not allow these extremists to essentially continue to allow these killings and murders to happen. Unless what they're saying is that Americans are somehow inherently more depraved and murderous than anyone else in the whole world. Because again, to your point, it's only happening here. You can go on vacation anywhere almost in the world that is not literally at war, and you don't have to worry about getting shot in a bowling alley. Only here do you have to worry about getting shot at a store, in a movie theater, at a restaurant, in the mall, only here. When you leave this country, you're free of it. I don't understand how we're willing to live this way. I'm sorry. I'm now ranting. Congressman Robert Garcia, thank you. I appreciate you. Um, up next on the readout, there is tremendous anguish in this country uh, over lots of things, <laughs> almost everything, but now over the Israel-Hamas war. And I think it is important that we hear from both Jewish Americans and Palestinian Americans, not as a debate, but individually. 
And we're going to do that in our next two segments to hear their concerns and fears and their hopes for the future. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Tonight, Israeli officials are saying that an increased military operation into Gaza is underway after hours of intensified strikes in the Gaza Strip. Richard, NBC's Richard Engel has the latest. Israel rained fire on Gaza tonight in the most intense assault so far of its three-week war against Hamas, striking with jets, tanks, and artillery. The attacks shut down communications in Gaza, the internet and phones cut. The Palestinian Red Crescent says it has lost contact with its staff running ambulances and emergency services. No way to reach our reporting teams. Palestinians were already trapped in Gaza and under attack. Now they're cut off from the world and each other. Tonight, an Israeli military spokesman says ground forces are expanding their activity. And this from a top aide to Israel's prime minister. Tonight, we are starting payback. We are beefing up the pressure on Hamas. We're hitting them hard. We'll be hitting them harder. Israel says it's targeting Hamas tunnels, claiming they also run under Gaza's largest hospital, describing it as a command center. Earlier, Israel stormed into Gaza in at least two brief incursions, with tanks and troops pushing in from the east and another naval assault from the Mediterranean Sea. Hamas has still been able to launch rockets at Israel, but only a few. One slipping through the Iron Dome defense system and striking in Tel Aviv. Hamas issued a threat that if Prime Minister Netanyahu decides to enter Gaza, quote, by land tonight, the resistance is ready and soldiers will be swallowed up by the land of Gaza. Civilians in Gaza are living in a nightmare, and the White House tonight is urging a pause in the Gaza operation to help push for the release of hostages held by Hamas and to get in more humanitarian aid. The October 7 terrorist attack by Hamas and the subsequent bombing of Gaza by Israel have triggered a fraught debate here in America. For two communities, Muslim Americans and Jewish Americans, this has been a deeply painful experience and one rife with conflicting emotions. Tonight, we're going to take some time to talk to people from both communities. Both have expressed feeling abandoned and under threat with a rise in Islamophobic and anti-Semitic attacks. On Wednesday, the Council on Islamic Relations announced that it has received 774 complaints and reported incidents of bias from across the U.S. since the Hamas attack. 
The advocacy group estimated that this is the largest number of complaints received in a similar period since former President Donald Trump called for a Muslim ban. At the same time, the Anti-Defamation League reported an equally significant spike in anti-Semitic incidents. According to preliminary data from the ADL Center on Extremism, there have been more than 300 anti-Semitic incidents since the Hamas attacks. That's a roughly 400 percent increase from the same period last year. In these very raw moments, communication is key and how you convey your message matters. To that point, we've seen egregious incidents of certain individuals waving deeply anti-Semitic signs, suggesting the world needs to be clean of Jewish people. Others tearing down posters of Israeli hostages and some George Washington University students projecting glory to our martyrs messages onto the school's library. And while that is not indicative of the message from most of those who are calling for a ceasefire, these incidents are deeply painful and triggering for Jewish Americans. Rabbi Sharon Brous, a progressive leader of the Ikar congregation in Los Angeles, who is known for her public criticism of the Israeli government, summed up the views of many in a recent sermon. She said that there is an existential loneliness happening within the community and that our human ask is that people give a damn when we die. She ended her sermon calling on all of us to step closer when another people is suffering. Rabbi Sharon Brous joins me now. She is the author of the upcoming book, The Amen Effect, which is a hopeful guide on how we break down this sense of abandonment by finding common ground and sharing in our collective grief. What a perfect book at just the right time. Rabbi Brous, thank you so much for being here. And I want you to just say more, um, more about how you and Um, many in your community are feeling since October 7th. Thank you, Joy. I'm really grateful that you're having this conversation in this way. Um, It's been a really difficult time. It's the anguish, it's the sorrow, it's the shock and the fear and the uncertainty. And it's also the loneliness, as you said. Um, There is this profound sense of absolute shock that not only were these atrocities committed against civilians, there were, as we now know well, 1,400 um, Israeli civilians who were murdered and more than 200 who were taken captive. I think the number now is 222 who are still in captivity. But really, the response around the world has been quite shocking. And I've been thinking over the last couple of weeks, if one could imagine a scenario in the world in which 1,400 civilians are raped and murdered and abducted and hundreds of thousands of people around the world takes the street to celebrate. And it's just unthinkable. I mean, what we in the, at first imagined might be some kind of moral conflict or silence uh, from some. Now we're seeing is a full celebration or condoning of these kinds of atrocities. And it's been incredibly painful. Um, there's a false binary, I think, that's been established now that either you have to, to stand for Palestinian liberation and for justice for Palestinians, which I personally have stood for and fought for for decades, and many in the Jewish community have, um, now means that you ostensibly support Hamas's terror. And that's just atrocious and unthinkable. There is no way that this conflict ends without us finding a way to live together, finding a liberation that is a shared liberation, building together a just society. And that means shared grieving. That means honoring the humanity in one another. And it's it's not happening there. And it's really not happening here on college campuses, on the street and really across the world, sadly. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you've said so much there um, to, to, to dig into. But I, let, let's talk about some of, as you said, the, the reaction um, so quickly after October 7th absolutely shifted to people focusing on Israel's reaction and the reaction to and what happened in Gaza and the deaths in Gaza. Um, you are um, somebody who believes in intersectionality. You've talked about intersectionality in your career. And as you said, you have been a supporter of Black Lives Matter and also a supporter um, of Palestine, of, of Palestinians, um, you know, search for their own sort of liberation and having a, a homeland. Um, do you think that part of the issue is that people are conflating the government in Israel, um, somehow conflating that with Jewish people worldwide? Because obviously you're an example. Not every Jewish person in the world agrees with that government. Do you think that people are just not expanding their vocabulary to get beyond that government? Yeah, I mean, there's an absurdity to suggesting that the peace-loving, mostly left-leaning, mostly secular Jews living in Israel's southern communities are fair targets for people who are opposing Israeli government policies. The equivalent of that would be an attack on a preschool or an old-age home in Westwood, California, under the Trump administration, right. where most of the people who live in Los Angeles, you know, a blue, blue state, blue city— um, are going to be held responsible for the actions of the government. There's an absurdity to it. And what's so yeah. painful about it is that it's not just Hamas that made that calculation, but it's literally professors at the greatest universities in this uh, in this country that have made that calculation. People who are responding with joy, exuberance, celebration at the murder of innocent people. And it's just it's just beyond devastating for us. And it's certainly not the way to have a peaceful and just future for anyone. And it's also joined. You, it happens to be the way that that, that anti-Semitism works. Anti-Semitism is a form yeah. of racism that operates in a, a little bit differently from the way that other racisms work. Um, one of the principles of anti-Semitism is blame the entire population for the actions of one party. Um, and we've mm -hmm. seen that throughout history. But the other thing about anti-Semitism that I think is important is that built into the Jewish psyche is the knowledge and awareness that Jews can often survive and even thrive in societies. And then in an instant, something happens, everything changes. And we are, you know, victims of persecution, pogrom, and even genocide. And so that's built into the Jewish psyche. And that's why so many Jews in this time really just feel so incredibly vulnerable, because that's precisely what happened here. Some of the atrocities that we saw committed um, in, on October 7th really are Nazi-like atrocities. And I use that language very, very carefully. But I met with many of the survivors when I was I was in Israel last week, and I was able to talk to a number of people from one of the hardest hit communities called Kfar Aza, right on the border. Mm -hmm. And what they described about the way that families were being hunted in their homes and, and and children hiding in closets while their parents were murdered and then their other siblings taken and abducted into Gaza. These things really, they're not only horrific for what they are, but they also trigger a very profound trauma in the Jewish psyche. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. And, and I think that that is sort of left out, as you said, of the conversation, because there is such a dichotomy between what a government does and what a people do. I think you gave a perfect answer to that. I'm going to give you, um, we have a little bit more time. Give us some positive language that people can use who care about the loss of those 1,400 um, precious lives 
and also care about the loss of life that's happening um, right now in Gaza? What's some good language that we can use that's affirming and that will bring us together? Well, our hearts are capacious enough to hold both. If we really care about humanity, then we care not only about the Jewish babies that were massacred in these towns on the south, but I'm also deeply concerned about the Palestinian children in Gaza who have nothing to do with this war and who deserve to live to live a free life, a life of dignity and a life of peace. What I actually am asking of us is that we dare to hold the humanity and the heartache and the trauma and the need for security and safety of the Jewish people while also holding the humanity and the heartache and the dignity and the need for justice for the Palestinian people. This is not, these are not binaries. These are things that we can actually and must actually seek out and achieve together. (coughs) And I'm having a a coughing fit (coughs) at the worst time. Rabbi Sharon Browse, thank you so much. God bless. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you, And up next, I'll talk. Thank you. Excuse me. <coughs> Up next, I'll talk with Rami Nashibi, a Palestinian-American community organizer from Chicago, who's part of a group that met yesterday with President Biden. Stay right there. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. What they say to me is I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. I'm sure innocents have been killed, and it's the price of waging a war. I have no confidence in the number that the Palestinians are using. President Biden casting doubt on the Palestinian death toll is the latest flashpoint in the Gaza crisis and its devastating impact on the Arab and Muslim communities in America. The Council on on American Islamic Relations, known as CARE, called the remarks shocking and dehumanizing. Dehumanizing. This is how many in the community describe how Palestinian people are treated, even as Israeli airstrikes surge in Gaza, destroying homes and killing dozens at a time. Palestinian Americans and their allies are making a desperate appeal to the world to show empathy for Palestinian lives. The question remains, who is listening? Joining me now is Rami Rami Nashashibi, founding executive director of Inner City Muslim Action Network. He was one of the participants in a meeting Thursday with President Biden, and he was the only Palestinian American in the room. Mr. Nashashibi, thank you so much for being here. Um, I guess I'll start by asking you, before I ask you how that meeting went with President Biden, just what was your kind of visceral reaction when you heard President Biden say he didn't believe Palestinians about the death toll in Gaza? Uh, It was gut-wrenching, quite frankly. 
Um, and it only exact, you know, really exacerbated this sense of complete um, alienation, uh, indignation uh, that so many in the larger American Muslim community and Palestinian, especially, um, and those who are just concerned for the sanctity of human life have felt since the uh, brutal attack upon Gaza after this, you know, horrific incident on October 7th, uh, it only served to underscore what this uh, framework of dehumanization um, has been since those very early hours, um, which is something I shared directly with the president, our profound concern, disappointment, and heartbreak to hear him uh, echo such sentiments. And what did he have to say to you all in response to that? Well, again, under the you know framework of our conversation, uh, we uh, generally agreed not to uh, <laughs> look back on the details of what he said. But I will say this, that as uh, I shared that with him, I also shared very explicitly that some of the talking points by some of the more right-wing elements of the Netanyahu Likud uh, government in his uh, cabinet, such as the Minister of Defense, that days, a uh, few hours before the invasion, um, called not just Hamas, but really all of the Palestinians in Gaza, human animals, and used that as a justification for shutting off all electricity, water, and said they'll be treated accordingly. Um, I shared that sentiment alongside the, the hurt, the harm of President Biden citing anxiety or doubt around the death toll um, at a time when uh, people across the globe are seeing bodies after bodies, uh, mass graves, churches with uh, people that have been completely eviscerated by uh, crumbling mortar. Um, uh, we shared that very specifically. And I think he received it and acknowledged it in ways that were hopeful um, that we'll see change come out of the White House uh, discourse, because it's not only we are very clear in saying we know that this dehumanizing discourse around Palestinians being less than human or that the sanctity of their life not being as valuable as the sanctity of life of others. Uh, we were very explicit and I was very explicit as a Palestinian American saying I fully understood and stood with the president as he communicated uh, unequivocal support and um, empathy for the Israelis and, and, and families, uh, American Jewish families that had loved ones that were either uh, brutally killed or held hostage during that day. We understood that. We completely uh, uh, stood by that and would express the same type of sentiments. However, it was just that much more jolting for a president who does certainly have the capacity to express human empathy, to do so so passionately with one group of people, and then to turn around and then uh, at a time where people are grieving the deaths of thousands of babies and children inside this open air prison uh, in one of the most densely concentrated places in the world, uh, and then to uh, question the numbers with no reason to do so. There was no media report on it. There was no independent confirmation. Unfortunately, there have been many invasions in Gaza and the health ministry inside Gaza has aligned with the United Nations and independent journalists many times. In fact, afterwards uh, produced a list 
of each and every one of the names of the 7,000 now plus deaths in Gaza. So there was absolutely no reason to do that. And it just added salt uh, to some very gaping wounds in a community that right now is reeling. I want to read to you um, a little bit of a, a, a piece that was published in The New York Times, written by a clinical psychologist and writer named Hala Alian, who's a Palestinian-American writer. Um, the task of the Palestinian is to be palatable or to be condemned. The task of the Palestinian we've seen in the past two weeks is to audition for empathy and compassion, to prove that we deserve it, to earn it. Um, they're being made to sing for the su their supper of airtime and fair coverage. They're being begging reporters to do the most basic tasks of their job, even in death. They cannot rest. Palestinians are being buried in mass graves or in old graves dug up to make room, and there's still not enough space. Um, I, I want to let you sort of expound on just your feelings on whether or not you feel the empathy of Americans more broadly, not just the president, um, when it comes to Palestinian lives and the occupation. Well, let me say this, that, you know, um, we in this moment, and I was, you know, very attentive to listening to uh, Rabbi Braus as she was explaining um, the suffering in the Jewish community, something that we are absolutely empathetic to. And I've organized along with some extraordinary rabbis here in Chicago and across the country. And absolutely, yeah. as Palestinians, as Muslims, understand suffering. Uh, but yes, Palestinians in this moment, often feel like we have to make these extraordinary cases, uh, especially those in power. And it is and has been absolutely, um, you know, uh, it, comforting for so many to see the risk that thousands upon thousands of students from all backgrounds uh, coming out. We don't see those positions as people articulating vile, hateful, hateful uh, anti-Semitic messages Things that we would condemn yeah. and do condemn. We see people sure. that are standing, Jewish, Christian, uh, Muslim voices of all backgrounds that see human suffering on a scale that is just um, absolutely devastating and standing yeah. with uh, a community in this moment of acknowledging human suffering. And that's at least um, some modicum of, uh, you know, a relief for us in this in this moment yeah. of tremendous suffering. Indeed. Um, well, Rami Nashashibi, thank you so much for being here. I'm wishing well to your family, who I know uh, you have as well in the region. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Um, and right. cheers. And up next, the danger of having a House speaker who has made it loud and clear, <coughs> I don't know why I'm coughing today, um, that his evangelical faith underpins his entire political worldview. We'll be right back. Newly minted House Speaker Mike Johnson is not shy about his right-wing evangelical Christian faith. It is the root of his entire political philosophy, in fact. In his first interview as Speaker with Fox's Sean Hannity, Johnson explained his well-documented history of fighting abortion access and LGBTQ rights. I am a Bible-believing Christian. Someone asked me today in the media, they said, it's a curious, people are curious, what does Mike Johnson think about any issue under the sun? I said, well, go pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. That's, that's my worldview. That's what I believe. Mm, well, of course, there's nothing wrong with believing in the Bible. The problem, of course, is trying to use your particular version of Christianity to rule over the rest of us, whether we believe your version or not. Mike Johnson has been even has been more accurately described as the most unabashedly Christian nationalist speaker in history, now second in line to the presidency. That is evident in Johnson's open history of many 
many virulently anti-abortion, anti-LGBTQ, pro-Christian theocracy comments like this sermon while he was running for Congress in 2016. You remember in the late 60s, we invented things like no-fault divorce laws. We invented uh, the sexual revolution. We invented um, uh, radical feminism. We invented legalized abortion in 1973, where the, where the, the state, the government, sanctions the killing of the unborn. I mean, we know that we're living in a completely amoral society. And so people say, how can a young person go into their schoolhouse and open fire on their classmates? Because we've taught a whole generation, a couple of generations now of Americans, that there is no right and wrong. Joining me now is Robert P. Jones, president and founder of the Public Religion Research Institute and author of The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. Robbie, it's good to see you. Talk about that. We just uh, did the the reveal of the, the annual PRRI uh, American Values Survey. It's pretty scary stuff. But there's a lot that you've done in your research about people's view that the 1960s was the end of good America and the beginning of bad America. Can mm. you comment on that? Oh, thanks, Joy. I'm glad to be on. Um, boy, Bible-believing Christian. Let me just kind of start with that, um, right? There's a certain version of that, of course, that links back to uh, the 1950s and this very sense of the country as a white Christian country. And when we ask in uh, public opinion surveys about that 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 era, you know, whether America, for example, has changed for the better or changed for the worse since the 1950s, what we overwhelmingly see is that white Christians, and particularly white evangelical Christians, are the ones who say, oh, no, yes, uh, things have changed for the worse uh, since, since the 1950s. And today, it's, it's overwhelming majorities of Republicans, uh, a party, by the way, that is 70% white and Christian, that say uh, things have changed for the worse since the 1950s, and overwhelming majorities of Democrats say things have changed for the better. Let's talk about what sort of that means. Um, You've got in your survey, um, Democrats, 84% of, of whom say that it would be a threat to our democracy if Donald Trump becomes president. Um, but Republicans, 77% say the other way, uh, that our democracy at risk if Biden becomes president. The polarization of the country, uh, is a frightening development. Talk a little bit about that. That's exactly right. I and mean, what the new survey shows is, I think, just how critical and frankly, how rough uh, the next 12 months are going to be uh, in this country. Um, we, we are seeing both both parties talking about things in apocalyptic terms like that, who, who basically see the election of the other leading candidate um, as something that's going to mean democracy is broken. Uh, and perhaps most troublingly, um, we've actually seen a rise in the uptick of uh, the folks who say that political violence might be necessary, that things are broken to that extent. Uh, and, and in particular, one in three Republicans uh, today say that uh, things have gotten so far off track in this country uh, that true American patriots may have to resort to violence uh, to save the country. It's something only 13 percent of Democrats say. So, yes, polarization, uh, but it's, it really is asymmetrical uh, in terms of these extreme measures and, and links to which uh, the Republican Party it seems to be willing to go and self-identified Republicans seem to be willing to go compared to uh, independents and Democrats. And this is irrespective of the sort of facts, because people have tried to attribute this to economic anxiety. It really ain't that because it's, you know, we have 4.9 percent GDP growth in the third quarter. So, you know, it's not that if it's not economics, then what is it that's driving the polarization on the Republican side? Yeah, it's the culture, stupid. Right. Um, you know, for a long time, I think that was the mantra in the Democratic Party. It's, it's the economy, stupid. I think today to really understand what's going on, particularly on the political right. We really have to understand uh, that it is the culture. So that 1950s question, I think, gives you a clue 
We also asked in the survey whether uh, people want a president who can manage the economy or protect American culture and way of life. And Republicans overwhelmingly, white evangelicals overwhelmingly, tell us that they want a, a president who could protect American culture and way of life, even then rather manage the economy. So it is this threat uh, to a changing country uh, that we're seeing animating uh, uh, the Republican Party today. And one of the things that we talked about that I think is interesting is that it's more young voters that vote on the economy because the economy, they experience it in a more negative way, even when the economy on paper is good. Older voters who uh, also make up a lot of the Republican Party, they're not worried about economics, right? They're worried about changing demographics, changing racial dynamics, that kind of stuff. No, that's right. And, you know, when we've done analysis, kind of deeper analysis where we've controlled for a lot of different variables, it looks like the recipe for Trump support. Um, it's not that the economy doesn't matter at all, but it matters about a third as much as these cultural issues, anti-immigrant sentiment, racial grievance, nostalgia for the 1950s. Those are about three times as powerful in predicting support for Trump uh, and the MAGA uh, movement than the economic anxiety issues are. And there we have it. Robert P. Jones, uh, thank you. Excellent research. Everybody should read it. PRRI.org. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. That's tonight's readout. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.